first chapter of Acts, first 11 verses. <clears throat> In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and te to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, <clears throat> but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, <clears throat> when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. We're starting a new series this week. I love starting new series. I just love it. I feel like I don't know anything when I start a new series. I jump into a book or a theme and I just feel that the Bible has so many layers below anything I could possibly imagine. We're going to look through the book of Acts and we're going to, the book of Acts is a long book. We're going to be here for a while. We'll take breaks. We'll cut it up into mini series. We'll give it themes. We'll navigate through it. I promise it won't feel like a lot of work, but we're going to take as a church and read through this book. So first thing I'm going to ask all of you is read it. Just read through Acts as I'm preaching through it. Read through it and read through it. Get to the end and read through it again. And just let it wash over you so that you can really hear what I'm preaching so that you can connect the dots. Acts is a book with an interesting genre, okay? An interesting uh, type of literature. It's full of speeches, visions, heroic tales, adventures, travel logs to far countries, shipwrecks, stonings, defections and transformation, confrontations, riots, imprisonment, miracles. This book has it all. And it also is important because it gives us context for the New Testament letters. We, without Acts, we would have no idea what Paul's talking about. We would have no context for where these things are happening and how they relate to the early church. But Acts knits this together for us and provides a backdrop for the whole rest of the New Testament. It grounds us.
When we think of Acts, we think about the church. That is a thing that we think about with this book. We think, okay, this is a book about the church. And so I picked this book out partially because we are going from a very inward season at Citizens. Not necessarily personally, you've all been retreating inward, but, but the world has been in an inward season. The pandemic has brought us into an inward season. And as we go out, we thought last summer that, oh, we're going to get out and it's all going to change. And we find not so fast. We find where we were placing our hope. And so regardless of what happens with the pandemic, as a pastor, I'm saying we need to begin a missional season. The pandemic is not an excuse. Whatever happens is not an excuse for us to be missional and focused outward and acts as a perfect place for us to dive into when we think about outward focus. If you could pick one word as the key theme for Acts, it would be witness. This is the key focus of Acts. And so today I'm going to kick us off with this idea of witness, with what I understand from this text is the kingdom mission. The kingdom mission. I'll round that out. But let me just read here where I get this from. In, verse one, in chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That is the thesis statement for Acts. Okay, so before we jump into that theme and dive into what that means in this passage, let's backtrack a little bit. Let's just ask a few questions. We have to lay some foundation here. We're gonna be here for a while. We need to know who's writing this book? Who wrote Acts? Well, the short answer, and it's pretty unanimous. Some books are in question. This is not. Luke is the author of Acts. In fact, a lot of people call Acts and Luke together, Luke-Acts with a hyphen in the middle, as read, to be read as basically one book. How do we know this? How can we see this? Part of my job as a pastor is to be a Bible teacher for you, to teach you how to read the Bible, how to come to some of the conclusions that I'm coming to up front. So let's just quickly look at the first three verses from Luke chapter one and Acts chapter one, okay? Here's how Acts chapter one, or sorry, here's how Luke chapter one starts. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. That's from a book we attribute to Luke. Now listen to Acts 1 through 3. In my former book, Theophilus. Seems pretty obvious right from the beginning. I wrote down about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days. We've been looking at that 40 day period for the last number of weeks and spoke about the kingdom of God. 
Okay, so right there, you can see that these books are connected by the same author. But the proofs move from proofs of Jesus' life and miracles to proofs of his resurrection. That's the focus. Acts 1 says, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Began to do and to teach. Well, that's an that's a interesting way to phrase the opening of Acts, which, is, which we have often called, right, the Acts of the Apostles. The Acts of the Apostles. William Barclay writes that generally we have talked about Acts in tradition as how it was that the church brought the gospel from Jerusalem to Rome. On the surface of things, that's a perfectly fine answer. But we tend to do our biblical interpretation. I had a, a mentor of mine tell me this the other day, and I thought it was so true. He says we do what's called Rorschach blot interpretation. Anyone know what a Rorschach blot is? It's, it's where you have a blot and you go to a therapist, right? And they give you just an ink blot and they say, what is it? And you go, it's a giraffe. It's a moose. It's my mother, right? Like whatever you say that Rorschach blot is, it's fine because it's just up to whatever you think it is. This is how so much of biblical interpretation is done by us when we approach the Bible, because that's exactly what the culture teaches us to interpret what we hear. That's exactly how the culture teaches us how to read things. Well, what do you see? That's what it is then for you. And so we use that without knowing, without thinking about it. That's how we interpret the Bible. Now, we may gloss it and say, well, it's, no, it's not me. It's the Holy Spirit. John, it's the Holy Spirit. Don't get in my grill. But I challenge you to say, is it? Or are you just looking at what you see out of it? And you go, that's great for me. Don't get in, don't get in my, don't complicate it for me, John. But you have to. Remember I said when the Bible throws you for a curveball, you dive deeper into it. We need to become people who read the Bible and understand that there was an author who wrote this, an author with an intention. So it's important to see Luke's intention as he continues from the book of Luke's to the book of Acts. He's already wrote about Jesus's ministry and his life and his death and his resurrection. All of that's happened in Luke. And then he says, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So the book of Acts is about what Jesus is continuing to teach and do. The unifying character in Luke Acts is not the 12 disciples to the apostles. It's Jesus from front to back. It's Jesus through the whole book of Luke as the gospel. And Acts is the gospel continued. It's Jesus from front to back. He is the unifying character, not the 12 apostles. Tim Mackey of the Bible Project says we should call it the Acts of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Because that's really what's happening. Barclay puts it this way well before Mackey. He said, the story of the church that carries on the life of Christ in, in the indwelling living spirit. Here's why this is important. 
because we have the spirit, we will find an ex indwelling and living in us. The living Jesus is acting among us. Jesus is not a memory. He's not an influence. He's not in the past. It's not Jesus left into the sky and the apostles picked up the baton and it's all apostle time now and we're just fueled by our memory or our inspiration of a great hero. Like we might be of a great person in American history or a founding father or Martin Luther King Jr. or whatever, that that inspires us. But as Christians, we, take, we have it at a whole different level. There is a spiritual reality that Jesus not was, but is. So in the book of Acts, we are going to be getting to know the spirit inside of us right now. We're getting to know the spirit inside of us right now by reading about what that spirit has done inside of the earliest followers of Jesus. John Stott talks about this connection and he says, if you look at Acts 1.1, it does not say, and now I will talk about the works of the spirit. No, sorry. Now I will talk about the works of the church. It doesn't say, this is what Jesus began to do and teach in Luke. And now I'm going to talk about the work of the church. It's not what it says. He contrasts two stages of ministry of the same Christ. And we see that because it immediately goes to the appointing of the Holy Spirit. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit, that's interesting. Jesus gave instructions to the disciples in the 40-day period, I thought in the flush. So how is he giving it through the Holy Spirit? So right there you see the Trinity coming together, the spirit of Jesus Christ in the physical body of Jesus Christ. This is pre-Pentecost, coming to the disciples through the body of Jesus, will later, after he's ascended to the Father until he returns, I wanted to say permanently, it's not permanently, but right now Jesus is not in front of us in the flesh. And when he comes back, it will be for good. It will be a final arrival. So in the meantime, we have the spirit and it is two stages of ministry of the same Christ. Okay, so the way that Luke articulates this, the way that we can begin to see this in the intention of the writing is that Luke makes a really big, big deal out of the ascension. Some of, some of the gospel authors don't even really note the ascension or it's like almost like a footnote. Luke has it at the end of chapter 24. Remember, we read it last, last week. Jesus ascends. And now right at the beginning of Acts, he has it again. When things are repeated in the Bible, it's saying this is important. Pay attention. Oftentimes, it's saying that this is a hinge. This is a place, this is a, like a seam. And you need to pay attention to sort of the narration and the things that the author is telling you on these edges. And this is a watershed moment. Massive, massive moment where Jesus is going to depart and Christ will continue to do and teach in the spirit. So the other thing we can tell about Luke is Luke's a historian. Luke gathers eyewitness accounts. He gathers, it says in Luke 1 verse 2, there were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word that have delivered these things to us. 
So Luke has gone, he's like a great journalist. He's gone and he's gotten firsthand accounts from Mary, the mother of Jesus, so that he has her song in the beginning of Luke. Just deeply personal, intimate accounts that he records as a reliable historian. What we also know about Luke is that at a certain point in Acts, and this is what connects these dots, is he begins to use the verbiage we. So the author of this book is traveling with Paul. And there's parts later in Acts that we'll come across where he begins to say, and then we had this happen to us. So there's also parts of Acts that are actual autobiographical, like Luke saw it with his very own eyes. But because Luke was connected with Paul and Peter, he had the who's who of the gospel movement at his fingertips. And he has one of the most robust accounts for us. It's a history. It's a beautiful history. So we've established that we have a historical genre here. We have a main character, which is Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Now we have to get into the setting of the book. This, this is intentionally a trick question. What is the setting of the book? Well, we know where they are, right? They're in, they're in Jerusalem and Israel and Bethany. They're, they're in that area. We know where they're probably going to go in Acts because it's said here in verse 8 to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, which in their case, they got as far as Rome, right? That's the setting, we would say, right? But I would argue that there's also a unifying setting to the book of Acts. And that setting is the spiritual kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the setting of Acts just as much as it's the setting of Luke and the setting of the ministry of Jesus. 35 times in Luke, he talks about the kingdom of God and here he says it again to emphasize its importance in the beginning of Acts, verse three, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now it would be really convenient, and I went back and looked in chapter 24 and I did a little search, kingdom of God, is, is it here in 24? Because that's what Luke just said. He said, he spoke during 40 days about the kingdom of God, so where is it? Didn't come up once. So Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God and everything else he's talking about in Luke, and Luke is showing us that no, the kingdom is where you don't realize. It is. The kingdom is in all sorts of teachings and doings of Jesus that we haven't, we haven't recognized, so that hasn't become the setting for us. But if we miss the kingdom of God being the actual landscape where Jesus is doing his ministry and where the apostles will go throughout their gospel witness, we miss this whole story, and I'll show you how. We miss this whole thing. This idea that the kingdom is the central setting, the spiritual setting, is the main source of confusion for the disciples and probably a huge source of confusion for us. Because you always have to pay attention to questions in narratives. Questions tell you what the author's trying to assert. Right? That in movies, this happens all the time. In movies, you will need what's called exposition. We need to know where we're at. So it, it's a common trope in movies to have a character that knows nothing. Enter the scenario so someone else can fill them in. They're not, the, the author, the scriptwriter, is filling you in. 
on what matters. That's what's happening in the narrative. We need to learn how to read narrative. And when we look at these central questions, they often tell us the point that the author is trying to get across and it connects to the kingdom. What is the central question? Let's continue from verse four and we'll get right to it. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, wait, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He's like jumping into the beauty of what's going to happen in the kingdom, in the kingdom program, in the mission, and where we're heading. And they basically interrupt him. And they say, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of God? They don't say God. The kingdom of Israel? The kingdom of Israel? That's what we want. That's their focus. They're thinking and dreaming about the kingdom of Israel. So their first error is that they've mixed up the kingdom of Israel with the kingdom of God. We'll see how. And then from there, they get way off track. They've got the wrong setting for the program. They've got the entire wrong landscape for where Jesus' work and ministry and glory is going to be shown. And it gets them way off track. The disciples have missed the memo of the kingdom mission right from the beginning. This is after three years of ministry, 40 days of Jesus teaching the kingdom expressly to them. And they have still missed the memo. And so there's two errors that need to be corrected from this from this spot onward. They have to have their idea of the desired kingdom corrected. So see, the problem isn't just that they've misidentified it. It's that what they really want is the restoration of the kingdom. You can't witness to a kingdom you aren't in. You can't witness to a kingdom you're not from. You wouldn't have any evidence. You wouldn't be telling people to go to the right place. John Calvin, and this is like in, I don't remember, date 15-something, Reformation time, right? He can be such a jerk sometimes, John Calvin. He says, there are as many errors in the disciples' questions as words. <laughs> the verbs, the noun, the adverbs all betray their doctrinal confusion. They have it all wrong, and the whole sentence structure spells how wrong it is. First, they say, Jesus is coming. Are you coming to restore to restore us? Are you coming to bring us back into power? Are you coming to make Israel great like it once was? That's delusional. That's not the plan at all. And we can see this by them saying, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel, to us? Are you going to restore the glory of God to us? We want it. We know we can handle it. We're ready for it. We've been waiting for the Messiah. And they also say, are you going to do it at this time, right now? Now, how does that betray things? Well, first, we've talked about the difference between Israel and the kingdom of God, the difference there. 
We've talked about how restoring it to them is not what Jesus is doing. But the last part is at this time. Mark 1, 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, which is a decree of good news, of God. He's proclaiming the gospel before he's died on the cross, by the way. He's proclaiming a kingdom declaration of the kingdom of God, the gospel, like a banner, trumpet, messenger coming in before the king. And he's saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Again, this is before he's died on the cross. The good news, okay? The, the kingdom's already come. And the disciples are asking, okay, are we ready? Are we gonna do it now? Is, is this the kingdom? Are, are you gonna finally bring it? Jesus is like, we've been in the kingdom. We've been in the kingdom all of Luke. I inaugurated the kingdom in the cross and resurrection. You have no idea how far in the kingdom program we are because you don't know what kingdom we're even talking about. Dallas Willard calls the kingdom often in his writings, the kingdom among us. I really like that terminology, the kingdom among us. Imagine Jesus saying the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, the kingdom among us. The kingdom that's already here, the kingdom that we're living in the present, as Barclay puts it, the present spiritually directed reign of God that you are in right now, sitting in these seats. You are in the present, spiritually directed reign of God. That's the setting for your story of your life. It's the setting for all of our stories of our life. We're not in Portland. We are in the present, spiritually directed reign of God as it's carried out in our physical location. Jesus can proclaim then the full nature of the kingdom, the good news, because he knows exactly what it will look like. He knows exactly the victory that will happen. Nothing's in question. He can proclaim the full gospel of Jesus Christ before on that side of the cross with as much certainty as we can proclaim it on this side. Because often we note the gospel, and I don't think this is wrong for us to see this as the center of the gospel, but we isolate it and often personalize it and then Rorschach blot reinterpret into whatever we want. Derek Vreeland calls the gospel the crucified, risen, and ascended Jesus. I think that's, that's very good. As we look back on the cross through the resurrection, we realize the kingdom of God came rushing into the earth through the death of the king of kings. God's first sign of the presence of the kingdom was the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection was God's vindication that Jesus is king and the kingdom of God had come. Okay, that's the evidence to everyone else that the kingdom had arrived. But Jesus himself was the presence of God. The kingdom existed in Jesus his whole life. The kingdom of God, the presence, the community of God had always existed with God in his presence. And Luke emphasizes this kingdom setting over and over and over and over. And the disciples miss the point. In Luke 24, in that section we just read, verse 45, he says, Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. 
This is part of how he describes the kingdom. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preaching his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going, you are witnesses. Note that you are witnesses of these things. So that is a core component. The core component of the gospel message is what he just said. Salvation through Jesus inaugurated and shown through his death and resurrection, okay? You are witnesses of these things. That's the kingdom witness is not just the witness of the power, not just the witness of the presence, but the witness of the salvation. So when Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand, he's saying, don't blink, don't look away, get on board, the salvation program is the kingdom among us. The thing that I'm going to bring that, but that has always been the plan, has always been the kingdom program, is coming. It's here. And Luke continues in this. He says, I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from high. So there again, you see that in the kingdom program, in the narrative that Jesus knows that we can't possibly understand in our human finite qualities. He's, he's just moving through the program. This is all part of the plan. You see the prophets in the Old Testament engaging with the plan, trying to call Israel to the plan. That God is on the move with the kingdom program from page one of the Bible to the end, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation at the very end. This is all the move of the kingdom program. Our problem, I think, sometimes is that we think that parts of the Bible just aren't engaging the kingdom. Parts of our life aren't engaging the kingdom. We need to understand the setting. And then we see that he goes, that Jesus has always been talking the same line. He's been consistent the whole time. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. Till I get it in you, till it clicks. So Jesus from within the kingdom is trying to bring the disciples into that confidence that we won't really see lock in until Pentecost. Next week. We'll, we'll talk about the story of Pentecost and then we will see this confidence, not perfection. The spirit in us does not create perfection, but confidence and boldness in the witness of the kingdom. Because I believe that when the spirit comes into you, the kingdom becomes the most real thing in your life. Jesus is taking his directions from God of how to move through the kingdom. And the disciples in this 40-day period are still trying to figure out quite what kingdom they're in. It's not that they don't want it. It's not that they're not willing. Part of it is that God simply has yet to call them into that and bring the spirit into them. So the entering of the kingdom of God, we've talked about this a little bit. This it is a huge theme. Luke emphasizes this theme. He talks about the kingdom of God 35 times in Luke, but the major emphasis he makes is on the entrance in the kingdom of God. What's, what good is a kingdom that's beautiful and glorious and just and right if I can't be in it? What use is that to me? Jesus is very others-minded and he's constantly talking about entering the kingdom of heaven. How you can be in the kingdom among us. 
Luke does this so well and it's integrated so deeply that he's not just a good writer, he's been called by many, many people, a literary genius. And his books are true genius. There's so many layers of connection and interplay in them, but it centers around one of the central themes, one of the most major central themes is this idea of salvation and entering the kingdom of God. So as we continue through Acts and the gospel continued, we will see how Acts and the witness laid out in verse one, eight, in, in chapter one, verse eight, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth is about the entrance into the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom mission. How did I get here? How does Luke talk about this? Well, Luke, Luke talks about it all over, but he locks it in real tight in chapter two. In chapter two of Luke, we have three distinct pieces of salvation all spilled out, all spelled out together. The angels come to the flocks by night and they say, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And if you're in a salvation program, you need to have somebody who's doing the saving. It's Jesus. It's the Christ, the Lord, King, Christ, King. Okay. So G David, a savior who is Christ, the Lord. And then to Joseph and Mary, Jesus' parents, they say, for my eyes have seen your salvation. This is when Jesus is, being, is, is young and is being brought into the temple. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. They're talking to God. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The gospel continued. This isn't a change of course. This isn't like, oh shoot, now we gotta get the church on it, Jesus. You know, that wasn't part of the plan. No, everything's laid out as part of the plan. The cross, the resurrection, the 40 day period, the ascension, the promise of the Holy Spirit, Pentecost, all of it's laid out for a plan that is actually as old as Genesis. So in Luke, we find salvation has been prepared by God, it's bestowed by Christ, and it's offered to all people. Now, if we do a little digging a little deeper, this week I was studying a lot of Abraham. Let's go to the Old Testament, the promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. Go from the kingdom of Babylon. That's where he was. He was in Babylon, in Ur of the Chaldeans. Go from your kingdom and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, the kingdom of God. Not presently inaugurated yet, but very much a spiritual reality that still must be entered through faith that I will show you, he says, and I will make you a great nation. This is where I think it leads to Christ, Christ from the line of David, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Anytime we desire greatness, whether it's in the name of nationalism or status or career or prestige or whatever we desire greatness in, be careful of your desire for greatness. If you're in the kingdom of God, which is the true spiritual kingdom, you are desiring to be blessed so that you can be a blessing. There is literally no other way to do that in the kingdom of God. If you're not wanting that, you are you are planning and scheming in the kingdom of man. 
The only reason God's favor comes is to bless the nations because God does not have a teacher's pet. He does not play favorites. God is on a mission, a kingdom mission, that all of the families of the earth will be blessed. That's the mission. The mission is for everyone, including the neighbors you don't like, including the, the, the son or daughter or brother or sister that you can't get along with, to be blessed. That's what God wants for them. He wants to bless them. So notice how Acts in the mission of 1.8 mirrors that. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses, my kingdom of God witnesses. In Jerusalem? Wait, I thought everyone in Jerusalem followed Yahweh, the one true God. In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria? Samaria has just destroyed and twisted our religion in the name of their selfish desires. They think they're the right ones. They think their way is the moral high ground. They think that what they do is the right way and they flaunt it in our face and put signs in their yard. I have to go to Samaria? And God says, and in you all the families of earth will be blessed. So do you see how the, the, the theology in Acts 1.8 goes back to Luke 2? It goes back a thousand other places, and it goes back to Genesis 12. Nothing has changed in God's kingdom program. It's moving along throughout history as it needs to move along, as he has appointed it so that it can be accomplished. And what we see is that history doesn't so much repeat itself as it ripples outward and riffs on the same central concerns. I stole that from Tom Holland. He's a historian that talks about history, and it's so true. We look for history to repeat itself. We say, well, that happened in World War II, so beware of another Hitler. Or, No, it ripples and riffs. It's like jazz. But the same themes are happening. The same kingdom core truths are still the mission of God. And those don't change. We can trust and we should love the beautiful history of the Bible. Because it teaches us what to look for. But we have to read it not as a Rorschach blot from my current moment in time. So that I get what I need out of it. Like self-help therapy. But to see what the author's intention was because sometimes his intention isn't going to be to help me in the way I want to be helped right now. It's going to be to break me down so that I can realize my blessing, my blessedness is to be a blessing. And I want to hold it all in. I want to say this, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to bring me back the glory that I had? Are you going to bring my country back the glory it had? Are you going to bring my church back the glory it had? My family, my job, whatever. He says, if you could see it from my perspective, it would all make so much sense. I'm gearing you up to witness. I'm not even going to answer the question. What does Jesus do? He says to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. There's just stuff you don't need to know. 
And then he gets right back on track with the kingdom. But as I was saying, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. He's literally interrupted because he's talking right here about, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The disciples rush in. They go, wait, no, what about the thing we want? And he goes, not even going to answer the question. That's the best way I can love you is to literally not answer your question and to tell you, you don't need to know. Go witness. That is an extremely humbling perspective on God's love, but it's coming from the mouth of Jesus Christ himself. That's so hard to take in. But the point is that God is on the move. And his kingdom is on the move. And he is connecting with us to commission us. Again, let's ripple effect this. Genesis 1 and 2 through verse 3. Genesis 1 and 2. God's purpose in creating mankind, if you go back and read it, it's to be on mission together. He tells them to take the creation and work it and keep it. Keep it means guard it. You are to work this and guard this. I am commissioning you from the moment you were designed. The whole point of what it means to be human is to be commissioned and collaborating as a witness of the divine creator. So you see how the kingdom of God has been in place from the very beginning. It has been assigned and shaped, and we are shaping in the same truth as God is when we work in the kingdom, but of course, we fell and the rest is history. So you see God invades throughout biblical history, and he says, hey, Abraham, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing. We're going to recommission the human race. Hey, disciples. Yeah, I could, I could ax you for so many different reasons. Remember, we talked about the book of Acts could be called Second Acts. He's giving him a second act, and he says, I'm recommissioning you to be a witness to your own city, to your own hearts, that the Holy Spirit reveal to you the ways in which you are broken and go witness that brokenness and the salvation that only comes from Jesus. Enter into the kingdom and call others to enter into the kingdom with you as you have entered it. In fact, in Genesis, there's even, beyond the shaping and guarding, there's also a commission to multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. This is before the fall and shape it. Michael Morales puts it this way. He says, creation, in other words, manifests God's purpose, the same purpose and promise found at the heart of the covenant with his people, which is found in Leviticus, where he says, I will make a dwelling, my dwelling place among you, and my soul will not despise you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. It's the same thing that's happening in Acts chapter one. Isn't that beautiful? That if we read the Bible as the Bible teaches us to read it, we won't be just trying to figure out Rorschach blots. That there is a clear kingdom program that we can learn. And that's what unites us. Not, oh, John, I heard in prayer this and I heard the opposite in prayer. Well, now what do we do? Am I like running a democracy and we need to figure this all out by committee? That's not the program. 
What does the Bible outline as the program? Let's do that. Do we want to worry about the end times? I grew up in Seventh-day Adventism. Seventh-day Adventism grew out of, as a denomination, its full identity grew out of the great disappointment when people were looking to the stars, trying to figure out when Jesus was going to come back. Split up people groups, split up denominations, fractured the church. Look at the problems that come from that. No, get on mission. This is not a passive story for us. When we enter the kingdom, that's it. This is an active story. We're traveling with God on mission. Look, at the disciples even have this wrong. Lord, are you at this time? Are you so passive? Are you going to do this? It's like the disciples are going like this. They're in a huddle, the 40 day period, and they're going, swing low, sweet chariot, coming forth to carry me home. How passive. Jesus is like, you're interrupting me. I have a mission for your church. Get on board. And it's not to restore Israel in the way that you think it is. Actually, it will restore Israel. Actually, they will reach Jerusalem. But man, it's going to be rough. They're going to get stoned. They're going to they're gonna go through it. They're going to get thrown in prisons as they try and reach the ends of the earth. This is the kingdom mission. When you get baptized, this is the part that they don't tell you. You are entering a kingdom that's on the move. It's going to shake up your life. It's going to mess it up. You're going to feel insecure. You're going to be uncomfortable. You're going to be asked to do things you don't have time to do this week. You're going to be asked to do things socially that you don't do because you have social anxiety. You're going to be asked to talk to strangers who could hurt you. You're going to be asked to represent Jesus and people will fire you. You're going to be asked to lose friendships, potentially. You have to put that on the line because you're not in that kingdom anymore. You're blessed to be a blessing. Now, you're blessed to be a blessing. You are not also out here to soapbox, preach, fire and brimstone in anger because you hate this city. Remember Jonah? No. You are blessed to be a blessing. So what do the disciples do? I kind of already got to this a little bit. Here they go again. 9b, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes. Jesus is literally inaugurated as the king ascended at the right hand of the father. Cloud hid him from the sight. That's language, by the way. Whenever you can't see or a character can't see, there's double meaning there. The cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, and suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside him. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Now, two men dressed in white, that's a sign in Luke 2. Always look for symbolism. Always look for connections and mutual descriptions. Two men dressed in white come in Luke at the sight of the empty tomb. These are angels, for sure. And they're moving the story forward for us as readers. They're directing both the disciples and us to understand the situation and what it means. And what do they say about the ascension, which means the return? What do they say about that? Why? Why are you so concerned about it? 
Why are you here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. That is not code for, please figure out when he will descend from a cloud the size of a pea into whatever and come, like, I know all those stories, great. That what they're saying is, come on. Like, what are you doing? They're going, swing low, sweet chariot, gonna carry me home. I'm just gonna hunker down until Jesus comes. And he's got me. He's the rescuer for me. This just doesn't compute with the kingdom program throughout the entire Bible. It doesn't compute with Abram. He didn't hunker down with his family in Babylon and say, God spoke to me, so I'm good. No, he went out to a place he didn't even know that God wouldn't even tell him. He's on the move so that he can be a bless, blessed to be a blessing. John Stott calls this a, a set of false fantasies. The apostles committed two opposite errors, which both had to be corrected. First, they were hoping for political power, the, restore, the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. Second, they were gazing up into the sky. They were preoccupied with the heavenly Jesus, and both were false fantasies. The first is the heir of the politician who dreams of establishing utopia on earth, left or right. I'm not making a partisan distinction. It's happening all around us wherever we read the news. The second is the heir of the pious who dreams only of heavenly bliss. The first vision, now catch this, the first vision is too earthly, earthy, some of you are in the earthy camp. Second vision is too heavenly. Too heavenly. There is a such thing as being too heavenly. I get what he means. There is such a thing as being too heavenly if I read what Luke means for me to hear from this. Then we get to the dwelling of the Spirit. We're going to look at this a lot more next week. There's many promises of the Spirit, but the Spirit is that dwelling place. Leviticus, I will dwell among you. You will be my people. It first happens in Eden where we're dwelling with God. But that didn't work out. So then it's brought in the tabernacle, Mount Sinai. That didn't work out. Then we build a temple. That didn't work out. Then the temple curtain is torn because it's in the person of Jesus. And then Jesus takes off. And Jesus must leave. Jesus must leave. But where will he dwell? Where will I go to be in the presence of God? You're living in it. It's inside of you. The beauty of Pentecost is not, when will I speak in tongues? We'll talk about it again more next week. It's that we're dwelling in the kingdom. That there is power in that. So what we're going to see in Acts, I'm going to move us forward here. What we're going to see in Acts is we're going to see that as Jesus is crowned king, not in the ascension, on the cross. Jesus is crowned king on the cross. Think about that as a crowning. Then he's seated at the right hand of the Father and takes his throne in the ascension. That these things must happen because, exactly because he has promised the Spirit. 
That's why. Because we are to be the new temple. We are his kingdom people, given kingdom power with his spirit from his kingdom promise. And now we all have targets on our back too. Tiberius dubbed the Christians people that followed the way was what he called it. He actually thought they were a sect of Judaism. At this point, Christianity wasn't recognized as his own religion. This is just a Jewish sect who's calling themselves followers of the way right? And he labeled them, earmarked that, and was on it. Because they were disrupting things. Why? Because they did things not in the name of Caesar, but in the name of Jesus throughout Acts. So again, there is civil disobedience in the bedrock of the Christian church. But we need to make sure that we are blessed so that we are blessing, so that we are working out the kingdom program in the name of Jesus. Newbigin says that to be a church is to be the pilgrim people of God on the move. One thing here. Robert Barron, who's a, a well-known Catholic priest, big on social media, just a, he's a big name, he's an interesting guy. He goes, I hope that all people will be saved. Now, for every evangelical, every Orthodox Christian, they go, wait, are you a universalist? I'm trying to sniff you out because if you're a witch, we're going to drown you. I hope that all people will be saved. I just, I just hope that everybody will be saved. But we're so on guard. We're so afraid, actually, of everyone being saved that he had to have a whole frequently asked question breakdown on his website, what he meant by that. And he goes, I literally meant what I said. I hope all people will be saved. That's not universalism. I don't expect it. I know that it won't be the case. But I hope, I just hope against hope that my neighbor will be saved. I hope against hope that my friend who I can't get along with, who is taken off the deep end, will be saved. I hope that. If we don't hope that everyone around us will be saved, if we can't hope that, are we able to be a witness? Man. That's challenging. That's challenging stuff. Again, it's not universalism. You can expect that things won't be a way. You can even know that they won't. And you can still hope against hope because the truth of the proclamation of the kingdom is that it will go to the ends of the earth. That's why you can hope. You can hope in the name of Jesus. And so as we navigate this along with the Church of Acts, seeing in their context what we can get out of it, how we can follow the kingdom program, we're going to have to practice the other piece that Luke is big on, which is diplomacy. Many people have called Luke a diplomat. This is just a tease for us for the rest of this, this series. Stott says this, if the kingdom of God is God's rule set up in the lives of his people by the Holy Spirit, it is spread by witnesses, not by soldiers, through a gospel of peace, not a declaration of war, and by the works of the Spirit, not by force of arms, political intrigue, or revolutionary violence. But he warns to not over-spiritualize it so that it has no bearing on any of those things. Although the kingdom of God must not be identified with any political ideology or program or party, it has radical political 
and social implications. That's a tough space for a lot of us too. Either we fall into a line of a particular ideology or program out there, or we say, I don't wanna do with any of it. I'm, I'm better than that. I don't use social media, right? I'm above it. No, there is some way that we witness in the kingdom that requires radical implications for all of the things we find ourselves in our sphere of influence. And that's where the diplomacy comes in. And when I mean diplomacy, I don't make always it's gonna look like peace. Stephen won't budge from his beliefs and is stunned. Paul is thrown in prison. But other times, Paul is winningly, winsomely proclaiming on Mars Hill. Other times, he's reaching people exactly with their philosophies and language. Other times, they're setting up schools of theology in places and growing them within cities that are hostile to them. There's so much interesting diplomacy that happens in Acts. So it is like us as humans to black and white it and go, nope, you got to do it this way or this way. It's just not like that. And I think the other piece in the series that we'll look at a lot, and I gotta wrap up, is um, church history. I wanna fold church history into this series so that we can begin to see. Look, the thing is, Catholicism has a, a really high view of church history, which has actually some real blessings with it. They, they really track through and learn from history. Protestants often have way too low of a view of church history. We just wanna break it up and start something new. That's what we were founded on, right? Just break it up. There's a new thing just around the corner. I don't care about any of that. This is what we need to do. So we can learn from the acts of other Christians. This was in Christianity Today just recently uh, about China. Roughly 70 years ago, the global church witnessed what was thought to be the end of the church in China. Similar to what we are witnessing today in Afghanistan, citizens and especially Christians scrambled to leave China after the Communist Party took over. The Chinese government persecuted the church in the immediate years following thousands abandoned Christ. But there was a generation of men and women who laid down their lives as the seeds of the Chinese church today. They remained faithful as individuals and as the corporate church. And when the time was right, the gospel spread across the country in such a way that today the Chinese church is the largest numerical church in the world. Christians in China are estimated to be around five to 7% of the population, crucial tipping point according to people who study missions. They're in the kingdom program. And they worked at diplomacy the way that they had to. They did not budge from proclaiming the gospel. They were a witness. So for us as a church, we're going through a major shift here, and I'm gonna keep pushing on this. this. We're shifting from a come and see to a go and share. Come and see typical model of an established church. Just come on in and invite you to church. Go and share. This is what the disciples were asked to do. Get out of Jerusalem. Go and share the witness. We're going to incorporate this into our cohorts, as I've talked about. We're going to check in on people's inward and outward. We're going to give people support for that. But the, the biggest thing here is that in your own life, this will be transformational. I will have probably arguments with you guys as a pastor, I will sit down and go, why not? Why won't you? I'll push on you. Because there is a root of biblical wisdom in the kingdom program, and it challenges this question for all of you. What are you building and why? What are you building and why? Why not God's program? Why not his kingdom mission? Why? 
perspective. Who gets to define the good, true, beautiful, and meaningful things in your life? Is God doing it or are you doing it? Because he's on the move. Let's pray. God, pray that you would kindle within us a spark. God, sometimes I get heated up here. I pray that we would have also a spirit of gentleness and love. I say all of these things out of love for our church, God. Pray that you would shake us up in the best possible way that we could look back a year from now and go, I am so glad that I'm part of the kingdom mission. In Jesus' name, amen.